Hello and welcome to this special edition of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. The subject today is, of course, the momentous events taking place, even as we speak, in Israel and Gaza. The magnitude of this event could hardly be exaggerated. We're going to be asking first, what does this mean for the Ukraine conflict, which is, of course, the focus of our podcast in normal times. But these very much are not normal times. And we'll be ranging well beyond that to look at the place of the Israel-Palestine conflict in the history of warfare and asking what Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, as Hamas have named their shocking attack, will mean for Israel, the Palestinians and the world. But first, let's just recap on the basic facts. On Saturday morning, thousands of rockets flew from Gaza, threatening to overwhelm the Israeli Iron Dome defences, hitting towns, cities and settlements. This, however, was a distraction from the main operation. About a thousand Hamas gunmen breached the fences and walls surrounding the Gaza Strip in seven places, rampaged through local towns and kibbutz settlements, killing at will and taking hostages. It was only on Sunday night that the last invaders were killed or captured. Total Israeli casualties are at least 700 plus, including soldiers and civilians. Israel, of course, has retaliated with hundreds of airstrikes, killing more than 400 Gazans, including civilians. Now, a massive buildup of troops and equipment is underway. 300,000 reservists have been called up. That's the biggest call up in Israeli history. And this is all in preparation for Operation Iron Swords, which is aimed at eradicating Hamas once and for all. So there's absolutely no chance of a cessation of violence in the near future, I would say, wouldn't you, Patrick? But first, let's deal with the Ukrainian aspect. How do you think this will change things? Well, before we get on to that, I think we should just say that all this happened without Israeli intelligence providing the military and political leadership with any warning whatsoever. And when it did, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, Sahal, uh, were painfully slow to respond. And we'll be looking at all that later. But to answer the question, I think this will be a cause for great rejoicing in the Kremlin, if only for the simple fact that it's knocked Ukraine off the headlines as the global crisis for the first time since February 2022. It also adds a huge layer of confusion to international politics, which will be very much to Vladimir Putin's liking. So basically, it's a distraction, I would say, that takes the world's and particularly America's attention off Russia and forces it to focus on the Middle East. Now, all this is bad news for Ukraine, I would say, because until now, it's had the attention of the world. It's been able to make its case repeatedly and to garner sympathy and support, material and diplomatic uh, and it's a kind of reminder, isn't it, that attention spans are short and this new crisis could mean a slackening of diplomatic energy focused on bringing the war in Ukraine to a successful conclusion from Kiev's point of view. Now, Russia's in a kind of win-win situation here, I would say, concerning Gaza. It's got very strong military ties with Iran. We all know about that. It's supplying drones that blitz Ukrainian cities, but it's also historically had good relations with Israel, which Israel has actually reciprocated. It's trod very carefully uh, in the Ukraine crisis. It hasn't denounced Russia uh, in the way that perhaps um, it might have been expected to. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very complicated picture diplomatically with lots of moving parts. Well, I had an absolutely fascinating insight today, Patrick, with a very fortuitous lunch in terms of timing with a senior former American officer 
who is very well placed, and you'll have to take my word for that, to comment on events like this. And he suggested that at one possible chink of light, uh, he, he, he agreed with all the points you've just made, but he, he said, actually, the counterpoint is that the attempt by Biden's government to force through a one-off package, which is the news since last week in, in terms of funding Ukraine, may be made slightly easier by what's going on in Israel, by the fact that a package for Israel will probably be tacked onto that. And that, of course, will make it much more likely that those on the right of the Republican Party will vote it through. So that's one possible advantage. Well, we do have some rather dramatic news just in, actually. As we're recording this, Hamas has announced that for every civilian property that's attacked, uh, bombed, of course, by the IDF or the Air Force, in the ensuing days, they will execute one of the hostages. So this is a sort of dramatic upping of the ante because they're effectively trying to uh, stop the the response by the Israelis in its tracks. And it rather brings to mind, of course, the issue of how to deal with a problem like this. I mean, this is in effect a counter-terrorist operation. But as we know, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, has effectively declared war as if it's some kind of conventional issue. But of course, it, it isn't a conventional issue. This is an action against terrorists. And we should make the point, actually, Patrick, a really important point that the majority of Gazans probably aren't even supportive of what Hamas has done. It's just that they're effectively under the control of Hamas. And they are the, you know, the, the Johnnies in the middle, so to speak, just as the civilians in Israel have had to suffer the consequences. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. We'll, we'll dwell on that a bit later on and on the difficulties of conducting the kind of operation that uh, that Netanyahu has declared. As you say, they're massing for a what appears to be a conventional uh, battle, but the people they're fighting are the absolute antithesis of that. You know, this is, again, another another asymmetric uh, conflict. But we're going to dwell on that a bit later on. I think what we ought to do is, is go back and just put this whole story into its historical context. I think uh, despite the fact that, you know, we, most of us have sort of grown up with this Israel-Palestine ongoing bloodshed and endless sort of clashes unresolved, none of it ever leading to any kind of peace, we ought to just have a quick reflection on where it all came from. Well, you know, I think, Saul, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are, but it seems to me this is the oldest kind of conflict. You know, historically, it goes back to the very beginning of human existence, and it's fundamentally about land. Both sides have a legitimate historical claim to the territory, but it's a very small place, and there just isn't enough room for both of them. And for centuries, of course, that didn't matter. But with the uh, Zionist migrations, the Aliyah, as they're called, of the late 19th and early 20th century, when because of persecution in Europe, a movement sprang up that that uh, sought a homeland in in the historical homeland of the Jews. Uh, then it be began to become a political problem, and then a security problem for for both sides. So it was that uh, you know the great then the, the great influx, of course, after the Holocaust, uh, the end of the Second World War, uh, really brought matters to boiling point. So you have the 1948 war, the 1967 war, the 1973 war, and then endless clashes and terrorist incidents and reprisals in between. Now, if you add to this ancient recipe of uh, a struggle for land, religion, then you really get a combustible and toxic recipe. Uh, of course, the first Zionists were socialists, they weren't particularly religious. Uh, but now the religious right is a big factor in Israeli politics. And of course, Islam has always played a part in Palestinian motivations. With the arrival of Hamas, it's bigger than ever. So a toxic brew. 
But having said that, I don't actually believe that this is a particularly complicated conflict, uh, though there is a tendency to always see it as this. I think, you know, this is, as I say, the root causes are, are simple and straightforward. So if people could actually ever be uh, brought to a point where they could agree on a division of the land, then that would solve the problem. That would be the smart thing to do. But I think um, we've long passed that two-state solution, as it was known. And I think uh, that this latest horror is going to drive that dream even further from view uh, to the point where it's it's pretty much invisible now, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Patrick, you'll, you'll have your own particular insight on this from your time as a correspondent in Jerusalem. And uh, I'm sure we'll come on to that in a moment. But my own work on at least the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict ongoing, of course, uh, since even before the Second World War, was my book on Entebbe, Operation Thunderbolt. And and it struck me one of the tragedies of the of the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict is that there was an opportunity to resolve it, albeit completely uh, unsatisfactorily, certainly from the Palestinians' perspective, at the end of the Second World War, when, of course, the UN originally suggested a, a division of what had been Palestine that was relatively, and I say relatively, favourable to the Palestinians. Uh, of course, they rejected that. And what they've ended up with, at least as far as the two enclaves that they now at least have some kind of authority over, although they're, of course, ringed and, and hemmed in by the Israelis, and that is, of course, the Gaza Strip, where this this attack has come out of and and also the West Bank. But both of those territories were captured by Israel and later handed back many, many years later as a result of the 67 war. So one war has kind of, you know, engendered more problems, engendered more problems. But the the other tragic moment, I think, was in the 70s when Rabin, who was prime minister during um, Operation Thunderbolt in 76, was very determined in his own mind that there would be no uh, Jews allowed to settle on land in either the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. And of course, it was mainly the West Bank, that being the much bigger territory. And even his determination wasn't able to stand against the hardliners who were absolutely determined that they would reclaim a bit of that land and, and look where we are now. Yeah, no, the quality of politicians, the quality of leadership on both sides actually has been in steep decline uh, since those days. So you have the likes of Shimon Peres, and of course, who, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, of course, along with Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat back in 1994, because they did actually, despite the fact that they came from very, very different perspectives, they were passionate about, about their causes, but they were able to actually get together and make peace. Now, those days seem very, very distant now. But I think to get get back to the actual nature of the fighting, what we've got here is something which, you know, we've seen this cycle, haven't we, going on ever since the first Intifada. Now, this was way back in 1987 when uh, the Palestinians basically rose up, they rioted, they marched, they they basically demonstrated violent demonstrations all over the West Bank and Gaza, protesting at the occupation as was then. And that did produce a political result. It started this peace process that resulted in the Oslo Accords, which the negotiations went on for a long time. And when they finally broke down at the, the Camp David talks in 2000, that prompted a second intifada or uprising, uh, which in turn radicalized Palestinian politics because the conventional, the kind of mainstream politicians of the PLO were usurped in Gaza by Hamas, who had a completely different narrative about what should, what should happen. So they're really religion is at the core of their beliefs and, and essentially jihad to dry, drive out the Jews from 
the whole of Palestine. So, you know, massive kind of step backwards. And as you say, Saul, um, I think we shouldn't we shouldn't categorize the fact that Hamas control Gaza. We shouldn't then lump in all Gazans with Hamas. It must be pretty uh, awful living under their rule, mm. particularly if you're a woman or particularly if you're gay. But having said all that, you know, Gaza, I've visited Gaza many times in my period there as a correspondent. And it is a an open sore. It is a huge human problem that needs to be solved. And I think the reaction of Hamas or Hamas's methodology is to just, is it totally nihilistic? What they're doing here is just to make life unbearable for their own people and for any Israeli they can sort of strike at in order to create what? You know, we still don't know what their actual intentions are short of some sort of apocalyptic war that will somehow resolve the problem. I don't know. I don't see how uh, what they're doing now has any sort of military end at all. It's really a pogrom. It's a 21st century pogrom of, of just sort of Jew hatred, which, like I say, is only going to intensify both the attitudes on the Israeli side, but also bring down terrible death and destruction on the people they're meant to represent. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of the fighting that might ensue. I mean, to give you a tiny little bit of insight, Patrick, I don't know if you've seen a Netflix drama called Fowder. Now, the star in Fowder was actually a former uh, special operations Israeli soldier. uh, And he had experience of these kind of behind the lines. That is, basically, you're using Israeli Arabs to work for the security forces and you're sending them into places like the Gaza Strip and also the West Bank to, you know, to undermine the terrorists who are operating out of there. And in that series, it's incredibly sort of dramatic and, of course, slightly exaggerated. But I should also point out that the, the, the aforementioned general I had lunch with today said, actually, of course, it takes dramatic liberties, but it is relatively true to life. But what you've got and what I think maybe you can illustrate a little bit too, Patrick, having been into Gaza City itself, is incredibly tightly packed environment in which you know, a member of the Israeli security forces is always in danger of being identified and almost certainly are executed on the spot. So it's incredibly brave of these characters, both intelligence and special operations soldiers to go in there uh, and try and do what they've been trying to do. But the reality now is that that's just a pinprick. Now they've got to uh, launch a major operation. Will they go in with effectively with ground forces in some kind of conventional way? Or will they try and continue this anti-terrorist or possibly uh, counterinsurgent type of operation, but just on a larger scale? Um, So the question is, what type of reaction are the Israelis going to pursue now? Will it be counterinsurgent, a sort of, you know, ramping up of this anti-terrorist operation that's been going on for a while? Or is there going to be a full-scale invasion? We'll be discussing all this and more after the break. Do join us then. Welcome back to this battleground special on the Gaza crisis. And before the break, we were discussing what might happen next, what kind of Israeli responses they're going to be. But I suppose, Patrick, having visited Gaza City yourself personally, you will be able to give us some kind of insight in what it might be like to carry out military operations there. Yes, it is very, very densely populated. Some people say the most densely populated territory on Earth. It's very long and narrow. It's basically a sort of a jumble of uh, what were once refugee camps, which over over the years have become permanent. So they're, to all intents and purposes, uh, sort of very tightly packed, heavily inhabited, small houses, um, often 
conditions are pretty horrible there. Uh, electricity is intermittent. There's a sort of intermittent blockade which goes up and down in its intensity, operated from the outside by the Israelis. And so life is pretty horrible. There's a sort of smell of sewage in the air. It's very crowded and very noisy. Uh, so the idea that you can actually carry out surgical airstrikes is a myth. I don't doubt the Israelis' intention uh, not to take innocent life, but in the circumstances, if you drop a, a bomb, uh, no matter how well-guided it is, uh, no matter how high the tech is, and it hits a, a, a Hamas position, an office, or a whatever, it's, it's in, almost certainly going to involve collateral damage. And already we've seen this. We've seen that uh, you know there are 400-odd casualty uh, deaths rather reported by the health ministry now in terms of of the um, veracity of these claims in my experience they tend to be they might be a little bit hazy but they tend to be more or less accurate so of those 400 deaths i think 120 are women and children thus far so i think that's the pattern that will be that will be set i've been in gaza for, for incursions in the past and what happened in those cases was, uh, you know, some tanks came across into the territory of Gaza. There were kind of limited operations trying to sort of strike at known Hamas positions. But, of course, you know, they changed the whole time. So they didn't last very long. And then the Israeli troops would, would uh, withdraw, usually under some sort of diplomatic umbrella. There's almost always an intervention from the UN, from the Americans, from the Egyptians to try and get a ceasefire in place. And usually the Israelis having, as they would cynically put it, mown the grass, i.e. killed uh, a, a fair number uh, of their enemies, thought, okay, job done. We've basically contained the situation for the time being, and then everyone would head off until the next time it happened. And of course, it, that's what was the case. Uh, it would basically business as usual for a couple of years, and then Hamas would fire off some more rockets, and then the Israelis would then respond in this sort of way. But I think... With these numbers, with what's happened now, this is a terrific shock to the psyche of Israel and the Israelis. I think they can't just do this again. They can't go in and mow the grass again. They're going to have to do something different. But what it is, I can't see, from what I know of the place, I just can't see a conventional military operation succeeding without sort of killing huge numbers of civilians. What are your thoughts, Saul? No, I think it's highly likely. But what's interesting is that Netanyahu, the, the Israeli prime minister, uh, and I should add, Patrick, for those who don't know, the brother of the uh, Sayeret Makkal, that's the kind of special operations unit in Israel, the commander who was killed on the Entebbe operation. And the reason I mention that is that Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, as he's called the current prime minister's, career was effectively uh, based or made by his brother's fame and martyrdom. And Bibi Netanyahu himself is a former special operations soldier as well. He was also in the Sayeret Makkal. So he does have some kind of knowledge on how these anti-terrorist operations are carried out. But what we've got here is an event of such magnitude. Some people, including the Israelis, are suggesting that, you know, this is effectively their 9-11. And, and it's interesting when you make the comparison, Patrick, because if you look at the size of Israel in terms of its population and the number of people who've died, I've seen one suggestion that if you do the same numbers in terms of the US population in 2001, this is the equivalent of 40,000 people being killed at 9-11. So, you know, let's not forget that Israel is a relatively tiny population and this is a huge kind of blow. Most 
of those people who've been killed are civilians, including many foreigners, actually. So absolutely butchered. Sorry to butt in. Sorry. Just on that point about comparisons, I was struck by the reaching for that, the uh, Israeli spokesman reaching for that 9-11. You also mentioned um, Pearl Harbor, but then someone came up, another Israeli spokesman came up with a uh, one that struck me much more forcibly. He said, this is the most, the biggest, largest number of Jews to be killed in a single day or in that period of time since the Holocaust. And that, I think, is a thought worth kind of getting your head around because it it speaks to what it means to the Israeli, uh, Israelis and the world's Jewish population generally. This is a shocking, shocking event. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you. Well, and this leads on to another interesting theme in all of this, and that is the issue of hostages. So so Hamas and uh, Israel's enemies, uh, and they've been doing this since the 60s, basically, have thought, well, we'll take a lot of Israelis hostage, we'll threaten to kill them, and we'll get uh, something in, in response. We'll get political concessions, or we'll get the release of some of our fighters who are, who are held in Israeli jails. And of course, there are plenty of Hamas still held in Israeli jails. So that, no doubt, will be one of the end games. The difficulty for the Israelis is rescuing these people. They have a policy not to do deals, or at least that's in in theory, if there's a way that they can rescue their hostages. And these conversations are all, all taking place behind closed doors, of course, between their politicians and their security forces. If there's a good chance that they can affect a rescue without the person they're trying to rescue being killed, which sounds fairly logical, doesn't it? Now, if you put this into the Gaza scenario, where they've been spread all over the place, the, the hostages, at least 100, I think possibly more, then you've got a situation where it's almost impossible to rescue them Safely, which is why, of course, we've already had that threat from Hamas that if uh, you know if the bombing of of houses continues, a bombing of residential settlements continues, uh, they're going to start executing these people, which is exactly what they threatened to do at Entebbe. And it's one of the reasons why the Entebbe operation was ultimately launched, was the, which was the rescue of Israelis who'd been hijacked on an Air France flight in 1976 and taken to Uganda where, <laughs> with the co operation of Idi Amin, that sort of, you know, pantomime villain, the uh, Palestinian terrorists and also in cahoots with German terrorists were trying to get concessions. But bring it back to the current day, that is, uh, you know, a scenario, i.e. a rescue, which you cannot imagine is likely to be successful. So what else can they do? This is the question we're asking ourselves. Yeah, I mean, there's all the, all that infrastructure as well, which, you know, clearly uh, events have shown they've got an extremely sophisticated sort of military network there we've all heard about the tunnels so the tunnels go not only under the fences and out into israel proper and i think on the other side into into egypt but there's also it would seem that the actual kind of subsoil of gaza has a network internal network if you like which connects up various hamas buildings and and operational centers or whatever and so there's any number of places where these unfortunate hostages are going to be held. I just can't foresee any possible way that a, a successful rescue operation could be mounted without massive loss of life of the people you're meant to be rescuing. Which brings us all, doesn't it, to the the question of this incredible failure of intelligence. Now, how was it that Hamas was able to construct what seemed to be pretty sophisticated rockets? Their range seems to have increased, if uh, if I'm correct. And in such numbers that they were able to be fired off in, in a very short period of time to the point where they uh, they seemed to cause enormous difficulties for the Iron Dome. You know, that's the Israelis. Uh, they, they developed this um, anti-missile system themselves with a lot of, of assistance from the, from the Americans, financial assistance at least, and which up until now has been very successful. But in this case, it wasn't. 
So, you know, where, what happens next? I mean, can you foresee any kind of conventional military operation that has any, any chance of succeeding? Well, before we come on to that, it's interesting to speculate on what might have happened with this intelligence failure, because as you say, Patrick, this is going to go down as one of the great intelligence blunders of all time. And people are already making the comparison quite rightly with the surprise attack in 73, the Yom Kippur War, where there was, uh, you know, a lot of soul searching, as indeed there will be in Israel after this, about why the hell didn't we know it was coming? So who's responsible for this type of security in Israel? Well, it's chiefly Shin Bet, which is the, you know, their equivalent of our MI five and it's much admired the the general was telling me at lunch today they are very very effective operators and the only reason he can think of that they took their eye off the ball because let's face it Shinbed is you know runs agents within Gaza and the West Bank it you know it's got very effective surveillance operations so why didn't it see this coming and his suggestion was the political turmoil you know the the trouble over the high court decisions that's going on the the government challenging the high court has distracted uh, Shin Bet to such an extent that, you know, as we know, there have been protests outside the prime minister's residence. And Shin Bet, which is obviously in charge of domestic security and has to keep an eye on the prime minister, may have been distracted as a result of that. It doesn't sound entirely convincing to me, I have to say. I suspect it's as much to do with overconfidence and a sense that you've got the infrastructure there to stop a breakout of the Gaza Strip, and that's enough to do the job. And even if they do attempt to get through it, there'll be enough time to react. But there was no reaction. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, no, I think you're right about I think I think there is a tendency on the Israeli side, both uh, on the intelligence side and on the straightforward military side, to be rather kind of complacent. They haven't faced a, a you know, conventional military threat for a long, long time. Um, and so I think that that's probably got more to do with it than um, having to having to protect the prime minister's residence. But yeah, you're absolutely right about this um, about the failure, the slow reaction. I tell you something that 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 struck me very as being very dramatic and very telling was uh, the attack on the Erez checkpoint. Now, if you've ever been to, into Gaza, the way that you get in from the north is this crossing point, which is an enormous blockhouse. It's surrounded by watchtowers with machine gun posts. There are sensors everywhere. And, you know, passing back and forth through it, it, it just looks completely impregnable. But, the, but lo and behold, Hamas put out some uh, video footage of uh, some of their men storming the place. And, um, you know, there, there, there appears to be very little resistance, uh, even more extraordinary perhaps is the way that they were just able to bulldoze through the uh, the fences without any facing any opposition at all and then actually capture two idf posts inside israel now this is you know unprecedented yeah now before we close we should mention that uh, i suppose perhaps inevitably we've had a couple of questions uh, coming into the battleground ukraine podcast feed about what's going on in Gaza and about a possible connection between the two. So thank you for these questions. One is from David Iser in Melbourne, and the other is from Andrew Hedges, and I'm assuming he's in the UK. And both of them are really asking effectively the same thing, which is, do we think that Russia has its fingerprints, is behind this in some way, that as Andrew Hedges puts it, the Palestinians are the patsies, and this is really a kind of uh, plot between Russia and Iran to destabilize the Middle East, distract America, and therefore benefit as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned. Any thoughts on that, Patrick? I think that's extremely unlikely 
for just look at what's happened here. I mean, first of all, I would say that I think this was probably uh, dreamt up by Hamas themselves. Uh, equally, I feel because Hamas de- depends uh, logistically and in all sorts of ways and uh, political support in the Arab world, the Islamic world on Iran, that it, they would have to have run this past uh, Iran before they uh, launched the operation. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think it's a question worth asking, but I think in this case, it was a local initiative. Yeah, and we should also make the point that Russia, of course, has to play a double game in the Middle East, but it's generally speaking been on reasonably good terms with Israel, you know, partly because a lot of exiles from from Russia, a lot of uh, Russians have actually gone to live in in Israel itself. So you couldn't say that Russia is pro-Hamas per se, and none of its pronouncements have been, you know, applauding what Hamas is doing there. They've been taking advantage in terms of the sort of information war of the, you know, the the potential disarray this, they feel this might give the the, the West. And, uh, you know, they've been accusing the West of taking their eye off the ball in the Middle East. They should have been sorting out the problems there instead of getting involved in issues which are nothing to do with them, hence the Ukraine war. So, you know, I agree with you, Patrick. I don't think this is started by Russia, but is Russia pleased it's happened? Yes, it is, for the reasons you've already given. Okay. I think we, before we end, it's just worth reflecting on... Uh you know, having spent a long time in the region, I lived in in uh, Jerusalem for a couple of years, and I've reported from the first intifada right up until two thousand and six, uh, coming and going. There, so I've seen a lot of it, and it's a it's a place. It's a wonderful place. It's got wonderful people on both sides of the conflict, and it does. Um, I think it sort of gets you that particular conflict in a way that other conflicts I covered didn't and the well to an outsider it, it often seems like insanity is is often profoundly depressing and um, one thing that you do learn very quickly there is that violence which both sides are very quick to turn to is clearly never going to be the answer there and going back to Yitzhak Rabin this is an old warrior turned politician a very very practical man a hard man and he was able to reach out to the Palestinians, uh, to Yasser Arafat, his sworn enemy of yesteryear, and shake his hand and try and make peace. Uh, and at the Nobel Peace Prize lecture, which he gave, he said something which is really quite moving and, and, and profoundly true. He said, military cemeteries in every corner of the world, a silent testimony to the failure of national leaders to sanctify human life. And Yitzhak Rabin, a great man, what became of him? Well, in November 1995, he was shot dead, not by a Palestinian, but by a right-wing Israeli extremist, Yigal Amir, who opposed the signing of the Oslo Accords, which were supposed to lead to peace. So, yeah, I mean, um, these are grim times. And well, all we can hope is that out of this uh, latest uh, dreadful turn of events, uh, some kind of wisdom emerges. Okay, that's all we have time for. So please do join us on Friday. Keep the questions coming in to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. And do join us on Friday when we'll be dealing with the week's news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.